Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yep, some head nods, that's good. And Nancy, would you mind uh, unmuting everyone in case they have questions during the talk? Thank you. Oh, the... My whole view changed during Zoom, hold on. Now I can just only see me pretty much. That's better. <clears throat> Good morning. My name's Todd Bankler. Uh, I can't read all the names from this far away, so I'm introducing myself in case I haven't met you before, although it looks like mostly familiar faces. I'm one of the entrusted teachers here in Austin. Actually, I'm in Lakeway, or Lake Travis, but traveled into Austin this morning. And this is the end of our Sunday program, where we bring to you some teaching or reflection that we think might be useful for you in your practice. And today, what I'd like to talk about is Zen as an embodied practice. Embodied. Something you do with your physical body. As opposed to um, a way of believing things should be. Right? Or something you do with your mind or your head. Zen is an embodied practice. It starts with the body. <clears throat> and today we're going to talk a little bit about why that is. <clears throat> and maybe related a bit to the precepts. So uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the Zen precepts are the ethical guidelines or the uh, way a Buddha or Buddhist lives in the world. And receiving the precepts and adopting the precepts is a, a fundamental practice of a Buddhist. And here, like in most Buddhist centers around the world, we offer the opportunity to study the precepts and to receive the precepts as you enter this path. So that's just to say that in the next month or two, there will be an announcement where Appamata's annual uh, year-long study and immersion of the precepts will begin once again. We spend 12 months going through the precepts, meeting once a month, and um, 
studying them, turning them over, and living with them. At the end of the year, there's an opportunity to formally receive the precepts ceremonially, if you so wish. So keep a lookout for that announcement. Uh, this year, that'll be led by myself, Joel, and Lori. <clears throat> So why don't I start by uh, using our Sunday program as an example of what an embodied practice is. In our Sunday program, which is the centerpiece that we offer for you know, weekly practice, for those of you who are interested in taking up this way, uh, you'll notice we have three periods of Zazen or seated meditation followed by, um, it used to be three periods, now it's two and we stop, periods of uh, kinhin or walking meditation. The zazen being 30 minutes and the kinhin being about 10 minutes. So all in all, that's 170 minutes of meditation that is devoted or 170 minutes of the Sunday program that's devoted to meditation practices. And now here in this portion of the talk, we usually keep that to 20 or 30 minutes. So there's a teaching right there. In our Sunday program, 80% of the time, 80% of what we do is zazen, is meditation. We take these talks in to give our minds some food, to help us with the concepts and um, ideas about what we're doing here. But really, that's not the meat of it. You know, the meat of this practice is mostly what you do with your body and how we sit. One can't help but notice, you know, when you sit in this seat, <clears throat> that the Dharma talk seems to be more popular than the seated meditation. More and more people show up for the talk compared to how many show up for the meditation. So I'll just remind you that, you know, if you're serious about training in this practice and want to uh, achieve the benefits, the fruits of Zen practice that come with this, if you don't have time for everything, I would invite you to prioritize the meditation over the talk. Now, when we do a seated meditation, this embodied practice with our bodies, it's not about any um, particular type of posture. If you've attended the orientation, Appamata's orientation on Sundays, you'll know we go through the various kinds of postures that are available and the ones that are traditionally taught. And in some places there'll be, um, you know, an, um, a focus on having newcomers learn a particular posture for meditation. We don't do that here. However, you know, 
our embodied practice, our posture is very important. And what we do do here is we invite you to pay particular attention to the posture that you have. So it's not about a particular posture, but it is about paying particular attention to the posture you have. You're invited to be here, to inhabit your body, to take care of it, and to pay attention to it in each moment that you sit. Here's what Suzuki Roshi has said about posture. These forms are not the means of attaining the right state of mind. To take this posture is itself to have the right state of mind. There's no need to obtain some special state of mind. So right off the bat, he's telling us, this is not about what you think. This is not about obtaining the right state of mind. Taking this posture itself is itself to have the right state of mind. They're one and the same. He's talking about traditional lotus position, but just leave that as the background. When we cross our legs like this, even though we have a right leg and a left leg, they've become one. This position expresses the oneness of duality, not two and not one. This is the most important teaching, not two and not one. Our body and mind are not two and not one. If you think your body and mind are two, that is wrong. If you think that they are one, that is also wrong. Our body and mind are both two and one. We usually think that if something is not one, it is more than one. If it is not singular, it is plural. But in our actual experience, our life is not only plural, but also singular. The most important point is to own your own physical body. If you slump, you will lose yourself. Your mind will be wandering about somewhere else. You will not be in your body. This is not the way. You must, we must exist right here, right now. This is the key point. You must have your own body and mind. Everything should exist in the right place, in the right way. Then there is no problem. When we have our body and mind in order, everything will exist in the right place, in the right way. 
So always try to keep the right posture, not only when you practice Zazen, but in your, all your activities. Take the right posture when you're driving your car, when you're reading. This is the true teaching. The teaching which is written on paper is not the true teaching. So Suzuki Roshi says, these forms are not the means of obtaining the right state of mind. To take this posture is itself to have the right state of mind. There's no need to obtain some special state of mind. Often in our usual way, you know, we think that there's more to it than that. Uh, most often what I hear from people out in the world when they find out I have a Zen practice and have been involved in this for some time, they'll usually say something to me like, oh, I can never do that. My mind is always going, right? Because there's this immediate, um, maybe cultural belief that meditation is about obtaining some proper state of mind, right? So if you think that, it's very easy to think you can't do that. Barry Madgett always said that in his newcomer instruction, he would instruct people that sitting zazen is like sitting down in front of a mirror. Your original face automatically appears as soon as you sit down. It's like your reflection being shown to you in a mirror. You can't do it right and you can't do it wrong. You can't prevent it. Your true self will automatically appear. So in our way, there's, the, there's a, an understanding that body and mind are one, right? That practice and realization are one, as Dogen would say. Dogen would call it practice realization. It was one word that he would hyphenate together, right? Because you couldn't extricate the two. You couldn't unlink them. A more conventional way of, of thinking about it um, was an insight I had coming from my own upbringing. I was, uh, in my younger days, I was a competitive gymnast. <clears throat> and I, you know, I would, uh, I was not very good. <laughs> I'll just say that. But, uh, you know, in the many levels of gymnastics, when you, you start to hit a competitive level up to what you would see in the Olympics, you know, I was probably less than halfway through that progression when my time came to an end. But one thing you learned in gymnastics is that you learn um, when you're trying to make your body do certain things, right? Flips, spins, tricks, releases. Um, with your limbs flying all about in the air, sometimes with nothing to hold on to, 
is there was a rule, a training principle that kids learn, and that is that the body follows the head. Right? When you, when you leave the ground into a trick, you lead with your head. You turn, you look back, you look up to begin a rotation. This is a, a lesson I sometimes learn the hard way. One time I was trying to, to see how, um, if I could do backflips like the women do, we weren't allowed to use the balance beam, but the women would be on the balance beam, which looked very interesting to me. <clears throat> And some of the advanced ones could do backflips on it. And so I was trying in our, in our break time to learn how to do that um, on, the, on the floor with just taped lines down. So I didn't actually have anything to fall off of. And I used to do very high backflips. My coach, actually, when he tried to spot me, he couldn't. He would stand on the ground and, and he was about five foot five. And when I would really hit one, I would go over his hands. So that's how high up I was in the air when he was standing. And so trying to do these over the, over the tape line on the ground, as I went up and hit the peak, I looked down to see if I was over the line and spot my landing at the wrong minute. Stopped all of my rotation. My body completely followed my head. What happened after that was uh, a horrible fall. I came crashing down from six or eight feet on my neck. <clears throat> I haven't forgot that one. But what was really interesting to me decades later in starting this practice was realizing that the opposite is also true. That the mind follows the body, which was never obvious to me. And that to me, I think, is what Suzuki Roshi is getting about, what Dogen is getting on about, right? You do not need to achieve some special state of mind. Taking this posture itself is the right state of mind, right? To take this posture is to achieve the right state of mind. Only someone in this right of state of mind would be taking this posture. And eventually, as your body stays immobile, upright, relaxed, dignified, and unmoved, the mind will follow. As Suzuki said, the most important point is to own your own physical body. If you slump, you will lose yourself. Your mind will be wandering about somewhere else. You will not be in your body. This is not the way. We must exist right here, right now. This is the key point. 
when we have our body and mind in order, everything else will exist in the right place, in the right way. This is from Philip Kaplow. You cannot hope to comprehend the exalted nature of Zen without understanding Inga Ichinyo, the meaning of which is cause and effect are one. Inga Ichinyo, cause and effect are one. This expression comes from Hakuin Zenji's chant in praise of Zazen. Strictly speaking, you ought not to think of your Zazen in terms of time. While it's generally true that if you do Zazen for a year, it will have an effect equal to a year's effort. And that if you practice Zazen for 10 years, it will produce an effect proportionate to 10 years effort. Yet the results of Zazen in terms of enlightenment cannot be measured by the length of your practice. From the commencement of practice, one proceeds upward in clearly differentiated stages, which can be considered a ladder of cause and effect. The word inga, meaning cause and effect, implies both degree and differentiation, while ichinyo signifies equality or sameness or oneness. Thus, while there are many stages corresponding to the length of practice, at every one of these stages, the mind substance is the same as that of a Buddha. Therefore, we say cause and effect are one. At every one of these different stages, the mind substance is the same as that of a Buddha. There's a saying, you know, one minute of sitting, one minute of being a Buddha. Cause and effect are one. You do this practice with your body. That's where it starts. Joko used to say that the fruits of practice or the transformational power of practice um, occurs at the cellular level. Your opinion of your practice doesn't affect it. And this is from Blanche Hartman, Flint's primary teacher. It says in the introduction of the Satipatthana Sutra, 
The activity of Satipatthana is the practice of mindfulness, cultivating mindfulness. The activity of Satipatthana definitely has a motivating agenda, the desire for awakening, which is classed not as a cause of suffering, but as part of the path to its ending. The role of mindfulness is to keep the mind properly grounded in the present moment in a way that will keep you on the path. To make an analogy, awakening is like a mountain on the horizon toward which you are driving a car. Mindfulness is what remembers to keep attention focused on the road to the mountain rather than letting it stay focused on glimpses of the mountain or get distracted by other paths leading away from the road. We usually look at mindfulness of the breath to begin with, because where there is a body that is alive, there is breath. And so it will always be there in the present moment. Therefore, it's a very ready object of focus that keeps bringing us back to the breath, keeps bringing us back to the body. Notice how when she talks about the present moment, she talks about embodied experiences, the breath, the physical form, the sensations. In her analogy, awakening is the mountain in the distance. Mindfulness in this practice is the hands on the wheel, is the attention to the road, is what's happening now. Notice how we keep coming back to the body and its physical function. Notice all the aspects of the body, all of the hair on the body, the skin, the bones, the marrow, the blood, the pus, the phlegm, and so on. And then she talks about how monks were trained to visit bodies, corpses in the charnel grounds, to meditate on the temporariness, the frailty of the human body. Monks breathed this in and out. To cultivate this kind of mind, this mind of compassion and generosity and loving kindness, we make our effort. It's for this reason that we cultivate mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness. We don't just do it for the heck of it. We do it because there is suffering and because we want to help to have a compassionate response to that suffering, our own suffering as well as others' suffering. Somehow, this sitting and breathing cultivates love and compassion and empathetic joy and equanimity.
Suzuki Roshi. If you want to obtain perfect calmness in your zazen, you should not be bothered by the various images you find in your mind. Let them come and let them go. Then they will be under control. But this policy is not so easy. It sounds easy, but it requires some special effort. How to make this kind of effort is the secret of practice. The true purpose is to see things as they are, to observe things as they are, and to let everything go as it goes. This is to put everything under control in its widest sense. Zen practice is to open up our small mind. So concentrating is just an aid to help you realize big mind or the mind that is everything. If you want to discover the true meaning of Zen in your everyday life, you have to understand the meaning of keeping your mind on your breathing and your body in the right posture in Zazen. It comes back to posture again, it comes right back to the body, right? If you want to discover true meaning in your everyday life, what does he talk about? Breathing, body, posture. So I'll leave you with one more. This is from Rev Anderson, one of Suzuki Roshi's students. And this is from Being Upright, a book we may use in the precepts class. And in the section on the preliminaries, beginning to study the precepts, starting with bringing forth, you know, the right type of attitude and mind before he actually begins the precepts. He talks about homage, renunciation, or letting go of attachments, and confession, confessing our karma, all my ancient twisted karma. And when talking about renunciation, or letting go of attachment, letting go of the clinging to the things of the world, pick it up here. There's a Japanese Zen term called Nyushin, N-Y-U-S-H-I-N, transliterated in English. Nyushin, Nyu means soft, gentle, pliable, or meek. Soft, gentle, pliable, or meek. And Shin means mind or heart or heart-mind. So soft mind, pliable mind, soft heart, pliable heart mind. 
Zen Master Dogen once asked his teacher, What is this mind of the Bodhisattva? The teacher said, It is this soft and flexible mind. Dogen asked, What is this soft mind? His teacher said, Soft mind is the willingness to let go of your body and your mind. How do you develop soft mind? You sit in the middle of the world of all suffering beings, which just happens to be where you are right now. Each human being is the center of the world of all suffering beings. You just sit in your place with your suffering, with your pain, and you feel the pain of all other beings around you. All Buddhas are sitting in that place. They don't sit on the edge of suffering, in the suburbs of suffering. They sit in the downtown of suffering. Each of us is already there. But if you want to be a Buddha, you should sit in the middle of that feeling. If you sit in the middle of your own suffering patiently, which means lovingly, allowing it to come, allowing it to go, wishing yourselves and others to be free of this suffering while accepting it in its current manifestation, soft mind arises. Your mind and your heart are tenderized and you develop the willingness to let go. When you sit patiently, you see more and more clearly that your suffering comes from holding on to what doesn't need to be gripped your body and mind don't need to be held. In fact, holding on is painful and makes you afraid. When you're not afraid, you don't hold on to your body or mind. You just let them function. When you see that holding is the source of pain, you want to let it go. Wanting to let it go is not the same as letting go but it prepares you for letting go. So basically you sit in the middle of your feelings, practicing patience and a willingness arises, a wish to let go. As you keep dealing with things on an ongoing basis, patiently and compassionately, the time comes when there is letting go. What is let go of? The delusion that you're separate that you have to hold on to yourself. You gradually see that you're not separate and then you let go. Or you let go and then you see that you're not separate. This is soft mind, pliable mind, ready mind. Thank you very much. If you have any questions, we have a few moments. Nancy, everybody shows muted to 
Is that you or can they unmute themselves? Uh, they can unmute themselves. Okay. I see Joel's hand going up and then start there. Uh, Todd, thank you for this uh, really excellent talk. Um, I wanted to ask uh, just uh, the book that you were reading from at the last. Uh, what is that? This is uh, Being Upright by uh, Reb Anderson. Thank you. Zen Meditation and the Bodhisattva Precepts, Being Upright. Thank you. Other questions? Go ahead. Um, hi, Todd. Thank you. Um, could you talk a little bit about the body in Kinhin? Um, uh, last week, um, Robin had suggested in doing that that we focus on the body and um, not as much on the visual, but the body in the space. And that was very helpful to me. Um, but I wondered if you had anything to offer on, on the body moving versus the body still. Yeah, Kinhin is kind of like our first baby step of bringing this out into the world. Um, I'm not here, I'm not interested in supporting you because I want you guys to be really good meditators. You know, that, I don't see the use in that. The Bodhisattva vow and my purpose is to bring this big mind out in the world, to bring it to the marketplace, to those you meet. And we have a very particular way of training that begins with immobilized upright sitting, right? constraining the, the, limiting the activity of the body um, as a way of simplifying our way of being in the world as a training. Kin Hin is just the first step in loosening those restrictions, bringing some movement into the same practice. It is the same practice. It's just the slow walking. So whatever Whatever technique or whatever um, training and practice you are working on or discuss with your teacher and you're bringing to the cushion, you would likely be doing that same practice, just with a little moving. Thank you. Welcome. Kim. You're still uh, so I remember that, that Socrates was really looking forward to, to dying because then his mind would be separated from his body and he could finally see clearly. But it, it seems like, you know, from that point on, we've done a lot of disservice by separating this mind and body. And um, I know in, in Japan, I was kind of surprised by some of, of uh, Suzuki Roshi's statement because supposedly heart mind is one 
you know, and why he separates it. And I'm trying just as kind of a thought experiment, maybe that's mine, but to, to link these two together more. And, and I had this um, friend, uh, well, it was a cockroach who visited me a few weeks ago, a giant cockroach. And I found him yesterday, his, his life is kind of over now, but trying to think with him, you know, or her, is there that separation and what, how might we, we, you know, we're separating these things and are we doing us ourselves a disservice? You know, and I know with your word embodied, it's bringing it together, but, but I'm trying to figure out how to, to really feel that rather than, than just use words to describe that. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but but basically I'm talking about the disservice we do in in using these two, having these two different things, where really one is the uh, is part of the other. Huh. Well, first I'm just uh, you know stuck on the fact that you have cockroaches as friends. Sorry, just trying to make little jokes. Well, it's okay. It's okay. This was a very, very special one. It's the yeah. only one I've seen for a long time in our house. Well, your the thought experiments are are interesting little bones that the mind can chew on. I don't know that there's answers. I mean, our whole practice is uh, kind of North Star of our practice is moving beyond the delusions of the small mind, which begin with its dualistic nature of asking, is it this or is it that? Is it this way or is it that way? Was he right or is she right? Right? Yeah, that relates to the not one, not two. Right. Right. And all of these things, all we're doing is dancing with small mind. Right. Dogen said the Buddha's way is to leap clear of the one and the many, to get off of that plane, to let go of is it this way or that way, and rest in the way. So I don't know. I don't know much about Socrates. I don't know how his views would compare. I don't think I could be much help there. Well, he thought the body would let, let us astray, that we couldn't see clearly because we had feelings, emotions, mm -hmm. you know, all that stuff, which we kind of um, trust more so, than he did. So he posits this that there exists some plane or way that could transcend the human body. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? We don't have that here. <laughs> Thank you. Time for one more, maybe? Uh, one of, um, Kathy, here. Can you hear me? Hi, Kathy. Yes. Um, 
One of the things that I, I felt really helped me was the Soma Yoga practices that Donna Martin and Flint did, both at uh, Molokai and when she came to Austin one time. And in that practice in Austin, it, that was the first time I really experienced a shift in, in noticing what was going on in my body and connecting that with practice because um, he had me reach for something. Well, I think the whole group had to reach for something, but I was, I was having difficulty with it. And uh, he and, and Donna came over and I reached and when I reached, I was grasping and he just asked me to turn my hand over. And as I turned my hand over, I just automatically opened my hand from a grasp position and it changed everything and it opened to compassion. And it's, it seemed like practice such as that can really change my, um, my Zen practice. Yes, I agree. You know, part of the Zen training in realizing this way is the forms that we follow in the Zendo, right? We have a particular way of holding our hands in gasho, you know, which looks like prayer position, except your arms or elbows up parallel, our forearms almost parallel to the floor. We bow to our cushion first. We're instructed to turn to the right, not the left to the right and bow to the room, right? All, there's all these forms that we observe, right? They look like something extra. They look like, oh, there's the practice, the real practice we do or the real study we do. And then there's these weird forms, right? They're not extra, right? They are the practice. This is a practice, a training you do with your body. It gets into you through your bones, not through your concepts, mm -hmm. right? So it sounds to me like you're describing a moment where your body got it and the brain mm -hmm. followed. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right, that's what these forms do. So I invite all of you, practice the forms as well as the meditation. Thank you very much. Thank you.